It's Beck and John. Oh, yeah? Yeah, they're coming over. What? Now? Sorry to parachute in on you like this. No, it's <laughs> fine. Come on, um, take a seat. Thanks, mate. Sure. We spoke to Ethan and Ben this morning. That's good. Yeah. I'm sure that there is a way that we can communicate truthfully what's happened. What? The truth according to whom? If I can't trust you on this, mate, then all deals are off, you understand? You're not talking about trust, Joel. You're talking about loyalty. Why are men so shit? Not all men. Thank you. I wasn't talking about you. So what are we going to do? Let's be smart about this, right? These guys are powerful. You don't have any evidence. What did our little boy find, Joel? I'm just worried about all of this getting out of hand. Choose a side, Daniel. Come on, Beck. You're not going to give me that bad mother bullshit, are you? These guys are into some weird, kinky shit. We have this now. There's nothing you can do about it. Black man, why are you doing this? Did you hear her scream? I mean, did you? This just feels a little like revenge. You okay? It's turning into a very long weekend, that's all. Yeah. That's the trailer for Disclosure. Hello and welcome to the Cinema Australia podcast. My name is Matthew Eels. In this episode, I'm joined by Disclosure writer and director Michael Bentham and actor Matilda Ridgway. Disclosure is an intense, dialogue-driven forehander. It's a story about what happens when a four-year-old girl makes a serious allegation against a politician's nine-year-old son. An attempt by the children's parents to tackle the issue in a cooperative way soon degenerates into a vicious confrontation. The parents are played by Matilda, Geraldine Hakewell, Mark Leonard Winter and Tom Wren, and they're all incredible. I've seen Disclosure three times now, uh, and recording this podcast made me want to watch it again. It's that good. Michael Bentham is a writer, director and a composer. He was born in Switzerland and grew up in the UK where he studied film. Disclosure is Michael's first feature film. Matilda is a Sydney Theatre award-winning actor. Uh, you would have seen her in uh, Heath Davis's Book Week and uh, she's set to appear in Marley Someone when it's released later in the year. Someone's dog decides to join us during this recording. It's quite funny. I'm not sure whose dog it was, but uh, the barking doesn't last long. Disclosure will have an advanced screening at Belgrave Cameo in Victoria at 3pm on Sunday, the 21st of February, uh, which includes a QA. and uh, The film will then have a limited run from Thursday, 25th at the same cinema. You can keep up to date with release announcements at cinemaaustralia.com.au. Anyway, enjoy. Um, I've watched Disclosure three times now. Uh, I first caught it back in January 2019 uh, when Michael asked me to take an early look at the film and then I caught it again ahead of its Sydney Fest Oz screening last year and uh, I watched it uh, yesterday actually to prepare for this interview. Uh, It's a very adult drama in every sense and it's a simple film technically but the characters in this script are both extraordinarily complex. I mean, these people are put in a situation none of us ever want to find ourselves in. But the truth Absolutely. of the matter is, is that uh, what's happening here is, is very 
well, it's quite common and, and it's very real. So, Michael, before we get started, I'm hoping you can tell our listeners about this situation your four characters find themselves in. Uh, what's the story of Disclosure? Yeah, well, it's about two sets of parents, two families, and it's drawn from a lot of research around an actual uh, growing and problematic issue. So it's about two families who start off the film ostensible friends, and they're impacted by a serious allegation made by the four-year-old daughter of one of the families against the nine-year-old son of the other family. And what the what the story is exploring is a or responding to is a very simple question, which is, do we believe the stories that really young children tell? And it goes on to explore some of the really extreme uh, ways in which adults can behave when their children are, are threatened or harmed. Um, before we go into the film, uh, I want to get to know you two a little bit better. So, Matilda, I might start with you first. How did you get into acting? Oh, wow. Uh, I think probably it's something that I was always pretty interested in ever since I was a little kid. And um, my grandma used to read me uh, Charles and Mary Lamb's Shakespeare stories wow. when I was really little. And uh, it was just always something I was interested in. And I uh, have kind of been doing it ever since I got out of school, really. Mostly theatre, but increasingly more film. And, uh, yeah. That's beautiful that your grandmother used to read Shakespeare to you. I mean, most grandmothers mm. read Three Little Pigs or something like that. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not complete Shakespeare plays, but they're fantastic. I mean, there's a million versions of them now, mm. fantastic illustrated things and stuff like that. But these were little short stories and they'd have a couple of lines of Shakespeare, enough to make you feel like as a child you were getting something of the language. And I think that made me feel like I was allowed to... Um, be interested in it or to have some authority on it or something, even as a small kid. So was uh, was acting and theatre and, and maybe film a part of your growing up? Was it a part of your family life? Yeah, yeah, definitely. My grandma and my parents would all take me to see shows and things like that. Um, when I was a kid, we were lucky being in Sydney. Um, you always had sort of access to lots of things, which was terrific, yeah. Mm. Um, Disclosure and Book Week are two of my favourite films of the last few oh, years and you're very wow. lucky to have starred in both. Which one came <laughs> first for you? Was it Disclosure or Book Week? Do you know, it's actually really funny. It was uh, Disclosure finished up and I flew straight back to Sydney and shot Book Week the week after Disclosure finished. Wow, there you go. And now, yeah. now Disclosure is coming out after Book Week's been and gone. Yeah, yeah, it's a funny thing like that. It's um, yeah, it's very funny. It's funny coming back, um, having disclosure coming out finally in Australia and mm. and watching it again, and just kind of being taken back to that experience. I feel like Michael's done such a terrific job of making such a um, nail biter of a film. You know, uh, it's so uncomfortable to be with those people for that time um, in the best kind of sense. Yes. You know, you can really feel your skin crawling and you kind of gasp at certain things that they say. And I find myself groaning and saying, no, don't do that. <laughs> you know, kind of adults behaving really badly. And even though it's so long since we filmed it, I, I kind of really get, um, swept up in it. Maybe it's good that it's been so long. I, I um I, I feel like it's somebody else yes. up there. 
Yes. Um, Michael, you were born in Switzerland and uh, you established a career in the UK. How did you find yourself in Australia? Um, oh, it's love. I, I mm. fell in love with an Australian woman <laughs> and, um, and she wanted to come back to Australia. And it got to a point in the UK where the planets aligned in such a way that it felt right for me to give Australia a go. So yes. I moved over here around six years ago now. Fantastic. And, and once you settled here, did you always intend on making your first feature film here in, in, in Australia? Yeah, I guess I always had that in the back of my mind. Uh, my the, the pathway that I navigated in the UK involved some near misses with feature films. Most notably in 2009, 2010, I was within a couple of months of shooting quite a big picture with quite a serious budget. And we had Damon Lewis in the lead role and we had half of our budget was was from the UK Film Council, the equivalent of Screen Australia. Mm. And just before we turned over, the new government came in and one of the first things they did was to axe the UK Film Council. So we lost half our budget overnight and then the whole film went into into a tailspin, which and I I think that's probably the closest I've come to actually throwing in the towel in, in, in what is a very difficult industry to operate in mm. and coming up to Australia really felt like a, a new lease of life and and uh, and this story came to me and I wrote it pretty quickly and I'd met some really fabulous filmmakers um, in the short period of time I'd been here and they were all incredibly supportive of the idea of me trying to make this film and so it actually came together very quickly so it felt so there's some, there was something serendipitous about it. Yes. Mm. How, how familiar were you with the Australian film landscape and, and Australian movies? Um, I was fairly familiar. The first time I came over to to Australia, I, I guess it was, wasn't it wasn't until I met Eleanor that I really really took an interest and actually made the effort to to actually seek out Australian movies. And the first time I came over to Australia. We went and saw, I'm pretty sure it was at Melbourne International Film Festival, um, went to see Warwick Thornton, Samson and Delilah. Oh, and beautiful. I was absolutely blown away by that. Mm-hmm. And and I think it was round about that trip or, or somewhere around there, um, I saw David Michaud's Animal Kingdom. And I think those two films really turned me on to what was going on in, 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 going on in Australia in, in, the, in cinema. Mm. And certainly since I've been here, uh, people like Jonathan Kenj and Rod Rathjan and Justin Cazell. I've, I've come to know these people's work and it's a really exciting place. And it's really exciting mm. actually at the moment. There's this little window that's happening at the moment um, in the absence of the big American studio pictures where there's this real resurgence of audience interest in in Australian films. And, mm. and Australian films have an enormous amount to offer. There's some extraordinary material out there. So good. Um, I think we've got four at the top of the box office at the moment, which is yeah. unheard of. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, during my research, I noticed that you two both worked together on a short film, uh, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. Uh, Michael, mm. you uh, edited the script, I believe, and, and Matilda as an actor. Matilda, is this how you two first met? Uh, well, yeah, Sunday, who directed that film, who is uh, was the casting director on this project. Wow. So that's how she was the link between us, I oh, guess. Oh, right. Yes. There you go. Um, yeah. And Mark Leonard Winter also uh, starred in that film as well, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was fabulous to get to work together again, although mm. our relationship in this 
was less of a torturer and <laughs> less of a director torturing his actress <laughs> um, and more of the kind of subtle complexities of a, um, a couple negotiating a difficult situation. Yes. Uh, Michael, was that the beginning of the casting for Disclosure? I mean, obviously you had a casting director, but did you take yep. an interest in Matilda and Mark? Or did, did you make them audition for their roles? Oh, no, 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 not at all. No? <laughs> um, so, uh, so Sunday, I, I worked with Sunday on her script for Tomorrow, and then she went and made the film, and I saw the film. I, I must have seen the film at a pretty early stage after it was locked off, and the first thing that leapt out was, was Matilda's performance. And I had this script... And I was, and I'd had some ideas of who I might, who might work in certain roles. And the role of Emily that Matilda plays was actually a completely blank slate at that point. I really didn't have a sense of who might, who might fill those shoes. And I saw this performance in Tomorrow by Matilda, and I thought, wow, she would be amazing um, to play Emily. Yes. So I approached Sunday and said, would you, would you mind sort of facilitating that? And then, then what grew out of that was, was bringing Sunday on board as a as um as a casting director right right and uh, and, and also i knew i i knew um i knew uh, the i knew mark lender winter's work from from various films mm. and of course that became a possibility for an introduction because uh, mark's obviously very established yes. and and that was a case of mark reading the script and deciding whether it was something that he would be willing to do on that sort of small budget basis and yes. And um, and he came back and absolutely loved the script. And we spent an hour chatting. And by the end of that, he said, "Yeah, I'm I'm on board." Matilda, uh, what was your first impression of this script? I mean, it, it is quite heavy in theme, as as we spoke about before. What was your first impression of it? Uh, I just found it enthralling. Hmm. Um, I think I felt uh, it was so. Um, uh, kind of empathetic yes. in so many ways. Mm. I felt um, you were right in the middle of so many of those struggles of each of those characters and I could feel off the page that you were being pulled mm. in your allegiances from character to character yes. and for certain friendships or, or certain relationships or for individual characters. Um, and I think what I loved about it was how in that kind of microcosm, micro-macro storytelling thing, there was something about a group of people who are trying to organise something, <laughs> trying to facilitate a reconciliation about a character or about two characters that really aren't in the film at all yes. and how that kind of had such ramifications. Um, it had such things to say about us as a society and how we're not particularly good even as adults at um, reconciling our differences or our differences of opinions, especially about things as emotive as children. Yes, yes. Um, it, did you get to spend much time with uh, Geraldine and, and Tom and, and Mark prior to shooting? Yeah, so I uh, have known Jerry for a long time. We've done uh, theatre together and uh, we got to do we had a, some rehearsal beforehand and I came down to Melbourne and it was so great to immediately start to feel the richness of those relationships and Tom and Mark uh, 
and Jerry all knew each other previously. Yes. So, uh, and I do think that you see that depth of relationship there yes. um, amongst uh, the the couples and amongst um, the boys. Mm. I feel like you do get a sense of that. Yes. I think the way that um, Michael and, and Mark shot, uh, it, it sort of leaps off the page, the sort of subtle looks, nods, um, the body language and stuff like that. You, you do feel like there's a depth of relationship there. Yes. Yeah. So so you'd say that uh, or, or do you think that it, it made it easier for you to be working with people who, who you were familiar with, uh, you know, with this kind of material? Uh, I would say 100%. I yeah. think that... Um, Especially with these locked off shots, um, you know, I think it, it's really interesting. I mean, for anyone who's interested in how cinema is made, I think that this film is a really different experience for a viewer, but it was also a really different experience for us to make. Yes. In some ways, there was elements of it really feeling like rehearsing a show, um, you know, long scenes of dialogue uh, that were sort of continuous single takes yes. and... Um, yeah, you, you need to have a lot of trust and uh, camaraderie in order to get through, especially with um, the material that this is. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, I wondered, actually, I had this question saved for a bit later, but you've touched on it here now. Um, can you tell us about those long scenes? Uh, you know, were there, many, were there many times where you had to cut? Or were there many bloopers? Was, was there much laughing and, and horseplay? Or, or did you all kind of nail them straight away? Oh. Who's that directed yeah, at? Uh, Matilda. Michael, you can answer that uh, because I wasn't there for all of the bits. I would love yeah, to sure. hear about whether or not Tom and Jerry and Mark had uh, as many bloopers as I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and there's, there's quite a story around that decision. The cinematographer Mark Carey and I sat down and we really wanted to find a way with the kind of limitations of this in, kind of independent film has, find a way of giving it a strong style and a strong look. And so we very early on decided not to attempt the traditional way of coverage. So that's shooting, establishing shots, mid shots, close-ups for climaxes and that kind of thing, which is very, uh, very hard on time. It, it eats time up and we knew we didn't have the time to do that. So what you tend to find with, with, a, with a, those films that are on smaller budgets that attempt traditional coverage is, they, is, is there's a real risk that they'll, they'll end up looking like daytime TV because they haven't had the time to really enrich those shots so we decided to very early on to take a really felt like a big risk to to develop this aesthetic where we were holding these very long developing shots some of them last for seven eight minutes yes. and that puts a huge demand on everyone so it's obviously demand on the crew in terms of making sure that that shot particularly if, if some of those shots were very slow tracks for example there's a very big set piece at the end which involved an incredibly slow track. So that put a huge amount of pressure on the grip. And then it puts a huge amount of pressure on, on the actors because they have to, obviously, on a very dialogue-heavy piece like this, they have to have absolute command of, of the script and then be able to deliver a performance over that kind of, uh, over that kind of period. Now, all of these actors do have um, an extraordinary track record on the stage, and I think that possibly really helped to underpin these extraordinary performances that, that you see in this film. And 
anyway, that's that's the story, and, and it really did feel like a risk. And there were moments where it felt like it would crash and burn, and that was, <laughs> that, and it was not actually. It wasn't the. It wasn't. Well, that wasn't the actors. It felt like it was going to crash and burn technically. So for this big set piece at the end, which is a which is a big long forehand around a pool and this very slow tracking shot. The, the shots kept failing for one reason or another, or yeah, or, or possibly um, one of the actors would 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 lose a line, or and and it, and the, and we were losing light, and it, and we were running out of time, and it really it did get to the very very last take possible take in terms of the light that we had, we had to get it on that final take, and I remember <laughs> I started to buckle at the knees, I was thinking this is this is this is all going to go horribly wrong, and that's. <laughs> My, my film my film's over and, um, and I kind of pray to the universe and and then it all came together in that final take it was extraordinary fantastic uh, Matilda I want to ask you about that pool scene a bit later um yeah. w- was there much was there much room for improvisation with these long takes and and this dialogue uh, uh, was there, did you allow the actors to improvise well funnily enough the original the original very first idea I had for this film was that it would be an improvised piece. Yes. And then I realized when I started to map out a framework where that improvisation could take place, I realized I, re- I wanted to say some very, very specific and very nuanced things, which mm. I felt would not necessarily surface in an improvised space. Plus the fact I don't have a lot of experience working with, with in, in that improvised space either. So I decided to go the other way and to and to really really nail it down as as a script. Yes, and 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 then and then to work with the actors in rehearsal. So we did we did have the the luxury of some of some significant uh, rehearsal time. Yeah, and in that rehearsal space, I could work with the actors developing those characters and through the development of those characters and those relationships and really giving clarity to each beat of the narrative. We could actually do quite a lot of rewrite of, of the dialogue which is which is what happened yeah so in those re- in that rehearsal space we did but we did then re-script so 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 everything you're hearing is is pretty it, it is pretty is very close to, to what was scripted but that script did go undergo some the dialogue did undergo some some development development in in the rehearsal period yes yeah. does, does that suit you matilda as an actor to to have you know all of the lines written down on the page rather than having to come up with them while you're shooting Oh, I mean, uh, I think in this situation, uh, as Michael said, there were some quite nuanced arguments that were happening. And I think that the choice of language of each of these characters is actually really important. And some of the stumbling blocks that happen between the couples and between the friends has to do with language. Um, And so it is really important that, uh, that some of this stuff is just people who have an inflexibility about a way of thinking around certain things. I, I don't want to believe that this is possible. I refuse to do this. Um, I, I won't let you say that. Yes. Uh, th- this kind of stuff, uh, th- that kind of dialogue is really important. So in, in the sense, um, say, for example, in, in other films, impro is so great in terms of fleshing out what was happening, but in this world we already had a really great sense of who these people were from the script that Michael brought in. And then after the developments and those kind of really rigorous discussions, the the word choices were very important and very specific. So yeah, it suited me down to the ground. I had a great experience. I can't believe just listening to you guys talk, I want to watch this movie for a fourth time. 
You're listening to the Cinema Australia podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud or cinemaaustralia.com.au. Um, <laughs> uh, Michael, these characters are quite messed up, but you know they put themselves before their. Ch- most of the time, they're putting themselves before their children. I mean, I've got children myself, and and I don't know, they're just horrible at times. Well, why did you want to? Why did you want to explore these particular characters and this situation that they find themselves in? I think it's, it was it was the the background stuff really. So mm. um, so I did a lot of reading around this this growing problem, particularly in the West. And in fact, there's, a, there's another report that has just been, been published in, in, into this issue. And there was a particular academic, Frida Briggs, who had written a major submission to a government inquiry. And I read her submission. It's a very detailed analysis of, of what's going on and what she thinks are the causes for this problem without giving too much away. Yeah. Um, and... And, through, and what, what really piqued my interest is, as a storyteller was the classic scenario that seems to be happening in a situation is a child makes an allegation against another child. The parents very often will be friends, and that's why the child perpetrator has, has the opportunity to, to access another child, a younger child normally. Mm-hmm. And the usual scenario is then, which, is, which makes complete sense, that the parents of the child that makes the disclosure goes to the other parents and says, my child has just said this thing. Yes. And then what really piqued my interest was then the way that then plays out, how the adults then behave. And one of the common outcomes, which I found really appalling, but really fascinating as a storyteller, was that the the family of the perpetrator will gather their friends and they will attack the family of the original victim in order to try and discredit the disclosure. Yes. And in doing so, the family of the original, the family of the the original child that makes a disclosure ends up moving out of the neighborhood. And this happens time and time again. And I thought that was fascinating. So what you're looking at actually is the contempt, these little contemporary witch hunts and yeah it does expose a really dark um underbelly or it 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 opens up problematic cultural stuff around yeah believing what young children say um institutions that have a really hard time again believing or listening to young children and their experiences and and really taking them seriously Mm. and this is what this is what's being exposed. So you can see a lot of the toxicity is is actually sits at a kind of institutional level, whether it's children or schools or police or social services or whatever it is. And that's really exacerbating the problem. Now, when I wrote these characters, I wanted to I wanted to um, increase the sense of jeopardy, if you like. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of thrillers, so yes. you, you probably see some kind of thriller tropes in 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 this in the way I, I I've constructed this story. So, for example, making the character Joel, who's the father of the of the the, the perpetrator, making him a state M, uh, an ambitious state MP. Yes, clearly, <laughs> clear, clearly raises the stakes yes. in a very obvious way that he's got an awful lot to lose mm. if this story gets out. Yeah. And so it was a matter of yeah working through each of the characters, thinking how would how would how would 
a different character play off. How would how how you know how would how would you how would I increase conflict in in, the, in this story? And in, in some ways, that uh, the, the the biggest the biggest development happened with the character of, of Beck because um, mm. she very much started life as as a as an absolute antagonist. And I realised on early drafts, I was thinking, yeah, she's a bit of a she's becoming a bit of a straw woman in terms of her role in in creating a lot of conflict and a lot of yeah a lot of conflict within within the story and i wanted to i wanted to do a, a lot more work with that character and to develop her in a way that that actually makes her more em, 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 empathetic yes and actually um geraldine hakewell was was central to that to that process as well she did mm. a lot of work with that character and and i and i think really really developed back into into someone who's really complex and i think there will be moments I hope, and this seems to be the feedback. There will be moments with the audience who, where they, where they come in, they come to this story and go, and, and at times they they will feel for her. Yes, and, yes, uh, definitely. And 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 really trying to understand what it is. So it's not just, in a sense, it's kind of easier to understand what it would to empathise with the notion of what it would be like to have a child make a disclosure like this. In some ways, it's more difficult to kind of put yourself in the shoes of someone who receives an allegation mm. and go, okay, so what would that feel like? And yeah. it was sort of going through all of those emotions to really to really work out how, how, how these characters might respond, going to the research, seeing how real-life people do respond in these situations. And, and, and unfortunately because it's such an emotive subject and because it involves children, the, the tendency is for adults to, to behave very, whoever they are, to behave very badly. Yes, yeah. And, and you, can kind of, you can kind of understand why they do. And if any of our listeners want to, you know, find out more about some of that stuff, there is uh, a lot of information on the website I noticed last night. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. So uh, what, one of the reasons for making this film actually is to, is to raise awareness of, of the back issue, yes, mm. yeah, and to hopefully get a discussion going that that will help improve institutional responses yeah. to, to to this problem. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the young boy in the film because uh, we see him mm. twice. Uh, once as a silhouette at the beginning of the film, and then towards the end, we see the back of his head. Is there a reason that you chose not to show his face? And I, I guess the reason that I ask is because you do show the the young girl's face. Yeah, because there's 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 two reasons for this. Because he is effectively being presented in the story as a perpetrator. The one of the really important things I wanted this film to do, and this is what film does anyway. As soon as you as soon as you as soon as you project a character onto a big screen, you're effectively you're turning them into a kind of archetypal figure. Yes, <laughs> and it was really important that this child, because he's effectively being presented as a perpetrator. Is I didn't want any. I didn't want him to be a recognisable boy that would reduce the notion of what he had done to oh well, it's just that particular individual. Yes, right. Mm. If, if that makes a sense. So yes. I wanted by not showing his face, he becomes an every boy. Yes. So yeah. what I wanted to get across was that 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 this ha- this thing that's happening between children um, is not as a result of. Um, a particular kind of individual, or particular individual boy or girl um, acting in a particular way. This, this could be. This could happen to anyone. Anyone. Yes. This, yeah. is, this is. This is basically what the research is saying. It's, it's the context in which these children. It's what these children are being exposed to that mm. will end up with them acting out the things that they do. Yeah. Um, um, and 
And that's what I what was really important to get across the idea that he that this could be anyone's son. Yes, that's right. Mm. Yeah, find himself in this position, and therefore not to judge them for that. Yes, uh, thank yeah. you. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, and um, with with my next question, I don't want to you know make light of anything that you've just spoken about. Or but um, Matilda, um, I really do want to know about this pool scene. Can we can we talk about that for a little bit? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I guess you, uh, uh, I guess there's something just so kind of quintessentially Australian about and and middle class Australia or upper class Australia, I guess, of like the background with a pool and a couple of friends having a beer or whatever. Mm. And so to set this kind of incredible discussion between these people around this kind of you know, this scene that we just kind of know and accept as something quite comfortable and relaxing, mm. um, I think is just so great. And I guess it's a little bit like a check off. You can't kind of have a gun without it going off. You can't kind of have a swimming pool without somebody getting a bit wet. Um, <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's just that kind of thing of like the film just so, uh, I think in such a nail biting fashion, just mm. devolves from people who are behaving like civilised adults Mm -hmm. into people who are behaving worse than children. Mm. And, um, yeah, I I think there's something that Michael's done which is just so brilliant, which is it's not a comfortable watch. Mm. It is not something where it's very clear to see who you're barracking for and what you should be thinking. And uh, I think he really provokes the audience to kind of uh, educate themselves about this issue and and also just to, like, make up their own mind about how they think uh, about these people. Mm-hmm. I think there's going to be a lot of discussions. I certainly know every time I've watched it with a friend or uh, a family member, it's, pro- it's provoked some fascinating discussion (laughs) uncomfortable but really interesting yes um and 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 so interesting in the way that you can kind of uh live alongside somebody who has a completely different view of it Mm. and um you know michael's right like we just don't know enough about this issue and Mm. it's not something that we're comfortable talking about or that people even know is happening Mm. and we just don't have a language around it Mm. so a film like this is just so great to get people talking and to to start to create a language yes Um, and can you tell us about a bit about the house uh, that 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 the film was shot in and and this location so i live up i live in the dandenong ranges and when I started to think about a location, it really, I think you get, it's exactly what material is talking you get these amazing contrasts um, up here. Yes. And I think that immediately, so you've already got this kind of drama happening. And the drama for me, it's, it's, it kind of takes you out, out outside immediately the story of the film. But what you've got in the Dandenong Ranges, for those who haven't had the pleasure of, 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 of being up here, is you've got this extraordinary temperate rainforest mm-hmm. with these, towering gum trees Mm. and then and then within that you've got these pockets of kind of first world real luxurious Mm. um living with the kind of iconic mediterranean pool and the pool we chose looks like it's just been planted from italy or or (laughs) spain or somewhere (laughs) and 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 i find that fascinating because it it feels as as someone coming from relatively recently from europe it feels really incongruous to see these 
kinds of structures like this Mediterranean swimming pool stuck in um, stuck in the Australian bush it's it's yeah it creates this weird tension and at the time when I wrote the script I was reading um a local author Melbourne-based author uh, Maria Tumarkin and she's written some extraordinary stories about what she calls trauma scape so this idea that the landscape in different places holds past traumas yes and you can so I was reading that at the time of reading the script and I was thinking, looking around this landscape and thinking, you know, this, this used to be the hunting grounds of the Wurundjeri and mm-hmm. thinking, well, okay, so we have a trauma scape here yes. and we have a trauma scape where you have the European settlement, the icons of, that, of, of, of European luxury kind of visible everywhere. In, in, and, and this is why this pool becomes such a, it has such a loaded symbolism, if you like, mm. for the film. Now, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not suggesting that that, that everything I said there is going to is going to be clearly articulated in the film. Yes, and clearly yeah. not. But, mm. but I was very, very much aware of that, and I was very much aware of those kind of contrasts and resonances and conflicts held by the landscape, and I thought that was really interesting. So, to then put this put this story into that space. And then, for example, yeah, as, as Matilda said, to have to have a complete meltdown of civility around <laughs> a, 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 around what you would associate with, yeah, the, the swimming pool being a, a kind of idyllic, <laughs> idyllic space. Um, it, it just just creates an, an interesting contrast, a dramatic contrast. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's what I love the most about doing this podcast is getting to hear great stories like that. It's fantastic. Um, I've got one final question, and and uh, Michael, I hope you don't mind me asking this, and tell me to mind my own business if you do. But um, the film is dedicated to Alison Goose here. Can you tell us about Alison and why the yeah, film was well, dedicated yeah, to her? Yeah, so um, Alison was my first wife, right. and um, she was one of the most formative adults in my life. Mm-hmm. So we were together from... We met each other at university and we were together from the age of 19. Wow. And she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis at the age of 30. Um, and this is, only, this is two years after I came out of film school yeah. at the National. And it, it, and it was a particularly aggressive form of the disease. So it very much turned our, our lives upside down. And, and she um, died nine years ago. Wow. And... Um, yeah, it, I know I, I, I owe my life as a filmmaker and, and, and so much of who I am as an adult to, to, to Alison. And wow. so the very least I could do, um, finally, finally, I mean, she, she had to, she was a long suffering, you know, my various attempts to get my first feature made, um, being scuffered for one reason or another. And she was always there by my side and supporting me. So the very least I could do. Um, when I made this film was to was to dedicate it to her. Oh, thanks for sharing that. I uh, really appreciate it. Um, well, thank you very much, you two. I, I really appreciate you both taking the time to join us and thank you for sharing your stories. I know our listeners are going to love it and uh, congratulations on the film. Pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Matthew. really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Cinema Australia podcast. You can keep up to date with all the latest Australian film news, reviews, features and interviews at cinemaaustralia.com.au.